You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Matthew. Here's Nate. Well, as we come to Matthew chapter 3, it's good to remember that we are studying the gospel of the kingdom written for the Jewish perspective and mindset from Matthew, who himself was also Jewish. It's not to say that there is nothing here for the Gentile mind, but it's helpful even for the Gentile in approaching the book of Matthew to see the Jewish mindset within this book. And so the gospel of the kingdom, I mean, that after all is what the nation of Israel was waiting for. They were waiting for the coming of the Christ. They were waiting for the restoration of the kingdom. They were waiting for the reestablishment of Israel as a superpower on earth. And of course, Jesus in his first coming had other plans and priorities outside of simply establishing physical kingdom. He would, through his body on the cross, purchase for himself a invisible spiritual kingdom. Not to say that he won't fulfill the prophecies concerning the physical, earthly, visible kingdom. I believe that he will, but that's what they were waiting for. And Jesus was coming initially to do a completely different work. Now, in preparation for Christ, John the Baptist came to prophesy and pave the way and sort of heighten the spiritual alertness of the people in Israel. You have to remember that quite a long amount of time has now passed in between the completion of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, and the time of Christ. There was some excitement there, you know, in 165 or 64 B.C. with Judas Maccabeus and, uh, you know, his overthrowing of the Seleucid Empire and the reconsecration of the temple. But still, it's been a relatively dark period of time for about 400 years. So Jesus now comes onto the scene, and rather than just entering onto the scene without any preparation or any priming of the pump whatsoever, John the Baptist comes first as a voice in the wilderness to fulfill some of those Old Testament prophecies and prepare people for the coming of the King, preparing the way of the Lord. And that's where we pick up the gospel in Matthew chapter 3. Chapter 2, we saw the birth and the childhood of Jesus in Bethlehem in Egypt and then growing up in Nazareth. But in chapter 3, verse 1, we enter into his adult life and we start this portion with the life of John the Baptist. It says in those days, verse 1, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And his message went like this, verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now it says in Luke chapter 3, verse 23, that Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age. 
And so John, roughly the same age, uh, just a couple of trimesters older than Jesus, uh, was, uh, you know, out there uh, in the wilderness preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And he had this very direct message, and, and it was first a message of repentance. Now, I'm a pastor and a preacher, you know, primarily, and, and uh, I spend a lot of time in front of groups of people preaching the Word of God, teaching the Word of God. And one thing I've discovered over time is that preaching repentance is a difficult message to preach. It's just one of those messages that, you know, when you do it, and I think any good pastor or Bible teacher or preacher will have, you know, at least a moment in nearly every teaching where there's a call to repentance, a call to correct course, come back to God and to repent of sin. The sin issue is just so huge and so That repentance issue is so important. But one thing I've discovered in preaching repentance is it is just a wearisome message to preach. And the reason for that, I think, is people can close off fairly quickly to a messenger when he preaches repentance. And so I just imagine John the Baptist out there in the wilderness with a message pretty much exclusively of repentance. This wasn't a mere side note. This was the main thrust of his ministry, a ministry where he's preaching repentance and pleading with people to reverse course and recognize their guilt. But of course, until a person really recognizes guilt and sees a need to repent, there is little room for the gospel inside of their hearts. And so he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, this idea, the kingdom of heaven, this is a major theme in the gospel of Matthew. 40 plus times in this gospel, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God will be mentioned. Now, as I already said, the Jews were expecting the Messiah to establish his kingdom on earth. But here, John comes speaking of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the Messiah will establish his kingdom on earth, but his first coming was designed to establish a spiritual kingdom. And John announces that it is here. It is at hand. For this, verse 3, is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So, in typical uh, Matthew style, uh, a prophecy from the Old Testament is quoted here. And here, this is from Isaiah 40, verse 3 talking about the special ministry that John the Baptist would have before the Messiah came. He would be a voice crying in the wilderness. John was both. He had a a prominent voice in Israel. All of Judea came out to see his ministry. And he located himself in the wilderness. And he was preparing the way of the Lord, making his path straight. Now, it's interesting that his message was that of repentance 
and yet he was preparing people for the Lord. And this is the kind of language that would be used concerning a king. When a king would come to town, they would repair the roads, they would fill in the valleys, they would knock down the hills, and they would make the paths straight. And so he says, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John is making the path ready for King Jesus. And the way that he does that is with this message that the kingdom of heaven is present and that people need to prepare themselves with a repentant heart. Now, John, verse 4, wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And so we get this description of John, a visible, physical description. He wore a camel's hair garment. He had a leather belt around his waist. And he ate a diet of locusts and wild honey. And so just kind of a rustic individual. This was slightly similar, in fact, more than slightly similar, to Elijah the prophet. Now, in the other Gospels, you learn that John actually came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And so, in Elijah fashion, he wears this leather belt and this camel's hair and, uh, you know, exists out in the wilderness. He was a rough and tough kind of individual. And it says in verse 5 that then Jerusalem and all Judea, and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And so this man was, John the Baptist, was an incredible man with really an incredible ministry. Jesus will say as much when we get to the 11th chapter of Matthew, and he'll talk about how of those born of women, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. And really, John was great for a few different reasons. You know, one is that he was really sort of the last of that Old Testament style of prophet. You know, he's involved here in the transition from law to grace, from old to new. And so this final Old Testament-like figure, it comes onto the scene to hand the baton to Jesus. He was also great because he was clearly a man that practiced a pretty high level of self-denial. You know, a diet of locusts and honey and wearing camel skin and living in the, the wilderness. This is no one's idea of a vacation. He was a sacrificial, self-denying man. On top of that, he was a man who I consider him great because he was plain yet powerful, simple clothes with a simple life, yet a powerful man. It highlights for me the reality that God is looking for willing vessels, not extravagant people. But I also see a greatness in John because he was a man filled with the Holy Spirit. It says in Luke 1 verse 15 that from his mother's womb, he was filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And uh, if you long to be, uh, you know, used mightily by the Lord, you must be filled with his Holy Spirit. Otherwise, your ministry and life will be dry as a bone. 
But also John was a man who was humble. He he felt he wasn't worthy to carry the Messiah's sandals. He felt he should, as he said in John 3 verse 30, decrease so that Jesus could increase. He only wanted to receive from God that which God would give to him. He was an honest, humble man. And so I just wanted to pause for a moment to highlight the greatness of John the Baptist because he truly was a powerful man. And people came out from all of Judea and Jerusalem to be baptized by him and they're confessing their sins. And in verse 7, it says that, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones to raise up children for for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, obviously, John is not afraid of a confrontation. He sees these Pharisees and these Sadducees coming. Now, we are going to see these characters repeated all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. The Pharisees and Sadducees were very different from one another. And a couple of highlights about them are simply this. You know, the Pharisees were a very religious group. Uh, they had become sort of the over-interpreters and protectors of the law of God. They had added so many rules and requirements and regulations to the law of God, all in the name of really honoring Scripture and loving God's Word, but taking it to this odd and strange extreme. And Jesus is going to particularly deal with this group during his entire ministry. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were really the opposite end of the spectrum from the Pharisees. The Pharisees would sort of be that really harsh, legalistic, religious right. Well, the Sadducees, on the other hand, were liberal at best. You know, they had a cloak of religiosity, but they were especially interested in political matters and affairs and authority. They did not believe in the supernatural and really only even held to the Pentateuch and not the rest of the Old Testament. And so Jesus will tussle with both of these figures throughout the book of Matthew, mostly the Pharisees, however. And so they come to John to just check things out, and he gets in their face. He calls them a brood of vipers. He warns them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He tells them not to assume that as Abraham's children, they are safe from God's judgment by saying that God could raise up children from Abraham from the rocks around them, which is an interesting and ironic side note. Because, of course, through the gospel and the life of Christ, whom John was preparing the way for, uh, Jesus would raise up children for Abraham outside of 
Judaism itself. The Gentile church would be able to claim spiritual ancestry with Abraham, the spiritual seed of Abraham. And so he tells them, he says, listen, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He wants to see fruit worthy of repentance coming from their lives. Now, in verse 11, he cries out and says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandal I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, this is a fascinating statement from John. First things first. He says there in verse 11, he tells them, I'm baptizing you with water for repentance. But there's one coming after me, a mighty one. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, of course, the picture is very simple. There's John, perhaps standing waist deep in the Jordan River, shouting at these Pharisees and Sadducees and then looking out at the crowd and saying, you know, look at me, I am baptizing you with water. And they understood that. They would walk out to the water and John or one of his disciples would take them and submerge them, immerse them into the water. They would come out, they'd be drenched from head to toe and they'd find their way back to the shore of the river. Now, John says, that's what I'm doing. But Jesus, who he prophesies up, he said, when he comes, he'll take you and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In other words, he'll take a person's life and he will submerge and immerse them into the Holy Spirit. Now, this is wonderful. John was baptizing people into water for a goal of repentance. Jesus will baptize people with the Holy Spirit with the goal, I think, of power to do the work that God has called us to do. Jesus said in Acts chapter 2, or excuse me, Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, in training his disciples, he told them to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, that which John the Baptist had promised, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And as they waited there in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And exactly what Jesus had said would take place took place. He had said in Acts 1 verse 8, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And I love this because, of course, at the end of the Gospels, Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, Receive now the Holy Spirit. But even after he told them to receive the Spirit, before he ascended finally and permanently, he looked at them and said, you know, the Holy Spirit is still going to come upon you guys. And I know that for me, that has been my personal experience. That Jesus sends his spirit into a person's life, 
He certainly sent his spirit into my life at an early age when I began to believe in him and trust in him. But for me, at least, it wasn't until years later when I really asked the Lord to pour out his spirit upon my life that I began to be empowered for the works of ministry that God had called me to do. And so it's so important to be baptized by the Holy Spirit, to have Jesus take you and and submerge and immerse you completely into his spirit, not necessarily for your own well-being, but so that the Holy Spirit of God can overflow your life so that you might be a blessing to others. But Jesus here, according to John, is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, I don't know that I'm all that certain what the fire here is referencing. Certainly in verse 12, the very next thing that John says, there's a winnowing fork and he'll clear the threshing floor and gather the wheat, but the chaff he'll burn with unquenchable fire. And so it appears in the context that when he talks about baptizing with fire, this is a baptism of judgment. And he calls it unquenchable fire. Later, we'll see it as everlasting punishment and destruction. A very real, everlasting place. The judgment of God for all of eternity. And so I think those are the two baptisms John is speaking of. Then in verse 13, Jesus came from Galilee. So now we have the appearance of Jesus as a grown man came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. Now, John would have prevented him saying, verse 14, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Now, this is a fascinating little moment in the life of John the Baptist, and more importantly, in the life of Christ. Jesus, you know, he's grown up in relative obscurity. He's lived in Nazareth. I assume he's been taking care of his family. Perhaps Joseph has died years previous, and he's working as a carpenter, providing for his mother and his younger siblings. And he comes out now at 30 years of age to John out there in the Jordan. And he climbs down into the water to be baptized. Now, John knew Jesus from their childhood. They were family. He knew the goodness in Jesus' heart. He knew that Jesus did not have an area he needed to repent over. And so he says to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you. And you're coming to me? But Jesus said this interesting thing. He said, no, let it be so. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, obviously, Jesus came without any sin. Obviously, he does not need to be baptized for his own sin or is a baptism of repentance. But on the other hand, it seems like he's saying something a little bit more than just, you know, it's the right thing to do because it 
kind of kickstarts my public ministry. No, it seems as if it's more than that because he says it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Not it's fitting for us to fulfill and do all that is right, but to fulfill all righteousness. Personally, I agree with those who would say that really at this moment, Jesus began bearing the weight of sin for mankind. Obviously, his atoning work occurred on the cross of Calvary. But I think that through this baptism, Jesus was beginning to identify with a fallen and broken world. And understanding that a lot of people are climbing out into this water, and a lot of people are repenting of sin, and there's a lot of sin out there, and these people will only sin again. This repentance, this washing, it it will be short-lived. And I think Jesus was, in a sense, beginning to atone for the sin of the world. It's like his ministry is really beginning in earnest as he is baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And when Jesus, verse 16, was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And so Jesus goes into the water to be baptized, and a couple of fascinating things happen. First of all, he sees the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him. Now, next time we're together in Matthew 4, we'll see that the Spirit then begins to lead Jesus. And really what we need to understand is that Jesus, in becoming flesh and dwelling among us, in taking the form of sinful flesh, in becoming a man, he set aside his glory. And so it appears that the insights he would have, the healing that he would produce, the power over the demonic realm, it appears that all of that would be done not through the personal power of his own deity, because he set aside his glory. Not that he was setting aside his position, but the benefits of his position. But that all of those things were done through the power of the Spirit of God. He was living a life of complete dependence upon the Father and upon the Spirit. And not only does the Spirit come upon him, but he hears a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so obviously you see the Father here, the Son and the Spirit, all three persons of the Trinity. And I love that before Jesus did any public ministry, the Father spoke and said, I am well pleased with my Son. And I love that by being in Christ, By believing in the gospel, I now have the same standing and identity with God as Jesus himself has. So that the Father would look at me and say, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, 
or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.